You need help around the house? Do as I've done for a long time. Get your steel products. S-T-I-H-L. Blowers, trimmers, chainsaws, handsaws, gas, electric, battery-powered tools to help you get the job done. And they have over 9,000 dealers around the country. Find them at steeldealers.com, S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. This is where you can find your local steel dealer, and they will help you year-round, whether it's blowing snow, cleaning up in the backyard, or cutting down some branches. Steeldealers.com. Start your day as I do with Boyer's Coffee. They've been brewing coffee in Colorado since 1965. They're locally owned. They're locally operated. They care about the environment. They are great community citizens. And right now they have all kinds of great deals on their flavored coffee and other product. Go to boyerscoffee.com that's boyerscoffee.com and you'll learn of all of the holiday deals and you may even find a gift or several for the important people in your life that is boyerscoffee.com this week on the drew goodman podcast remembering pierre lacroix you could make a strong and convincing case he was the most impactful general manager in any sport in denver and drew's special guest this week is jim gray on his new book talking to goats and the controversial pete rose interview yeah i could understand having watched it on tape later uh, how that came across as abrupt and how that came across as changing the whole feeling and what happened when he ran into pete years later Pete got up and walked over the table, and I said to my wife, Fran, oh boy, here comes Pete. Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast at iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And leave a comment. It helps other people find the show. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Well, welcome everybody to podcast number 75 of the Drew Goodman Podcast. i got to share a story with you. It's uh, a Tuesday afternoon as we tape this, and yesterday... I had my first college basketball game of the year. It was University of Colorado taking on the University of Northern Colorado up in Boulder. I was supposed to have a couple last week, and COVID wiped those out. But you know what was so good? I never thought I'd be happier to put on a suit and tie than I was yesterday. Got to work again. I remembered how to tie that tie. It was pretty neat to just get dressed up again. I've been wandering around in sweats and workout gear for months now since the last Rockies game. So that uh, that was fun to do. And congratulations to uh, Colorado under Tad Boiler off to a 3-1 and start. They blew out UNC, as I said, on Monday. Get to put a suit on again on Wednesday when uh, Colorado takes on Omaha, UNC, they're going to be fine. They'll do uh, well under Steve Smiley, first-year uh, head coach. They've been a very good program. They play in the big sky. Just a little outmatched by uh, Colorado and McKinley Wright, who's a wonderful talent, man. If you have a chance to watch Colorado play, you got to watch McKinley Wright. Well, we start today talking about a guy that I had uh, the utmost respect for and passed away in the last uh, few days, and that is Pierre Lacroix, who was the general manager and, and president of the Avalanche during their heyday when they won their first cup in 96, when they repeated in 2001. And during that period of time, they had not only one of the two best hockey teams in the sport, but they had, for me, the most entertaining hockey team in the sport. And he built them and he was always able to make the bold move. I mean, you think back 
and around the trade deadline, it became an annual occurrence, whatever big name was out there, you kind of figured that that big name somehow was going to be wearing an avalanche sweater by the time midnight struck on the trade deadline. It happened with Rob Blake. Remember, Theo Fleury came to town. Of course, they signed uh, Ray Bork, and, and Bork finally won a Stanley Cup in that iconic Colorado moment when Joe Sackick handed Bork the cup so he could raise it over his head first. And, of course, it all started with that Patrick Waugh deal. I mean, Pierre Lacroix originally was Patrick Waugh's agent, and Patrick Waugh became upset with the Montreal Canadiens' brass, and he orchestrated that deal, which turned around that franchise, which had just come here from Quebec. And I don't think people realized how important a move it was at that time, but this city came to adopt Patrick Waugh, and if you write down the list of all-time great athletes and sports figures in Denver, I think it'll always begin with John Elway, naturally. But Patrick Waugh is right near the top of that list, and he became a member of the Avalanche because of the late Pierre Lacroix. I have uh, uh, you know, several stories about Lacroix. He was, he, he was a tough guy, but a very warm guy. And he cared a great deal about the people around him. But I remember there was one year I was hosting the pre and post game back then on our coverage of the avalanche and doing, you know, between period stuff. And it was opening night and Val Kamensky, who was a wonderful forward, a, a winger was, was holding out and all avalanche fans wanted to know what, what was happening with Val Kamensky was he going to sign was it imminent and like many general managers Pierre Lacroix had a policy he wasn't going to talk about anybody that wasn't in uniform and he was coming on the pregame show the initial pregame show of the season that year and I told Pierre off the air I said listen Pierre we'll talk about a number of subjects and as as the uh Eve of the season was upon us. I said, but I have to ask you about Val Kamensky, even though I know what your policy is, and even if you just want to restate your policy, I have to ask you, otherwise the people at home are going to wonder why I didn't bring up the number one topic right now with the avalanche, and that was Val Kamensky's status. And, and Pierre said, well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to answer that. Uh, and we went, kind of went back and forth before we went on the air, ultimately go on the air and uh, you know, I, I ask him the question, and he basically says, "You know, I'm not going to comment on, on on the contract status of somebody who's not here and that sort of thing." And we moved on. But Pierre could be tough, but he was always fair. I remember uh, a time flying back from uh, another city on the charter, and you know, he'd come by and, and he wanted to make sure that I was enjoying my meal and that I got enough of my meal. I mean, it's just little things like that that gave you insight into what kind of person he was beyond the most effective general manager, not only clearly in avalanche history, but I think you could make a strong and convincing case. He has been the most impactful. He was the most impactful general manager in any sport in Denver. It would be hard to refute that. And it was very sad to hear of his passing. He had an impact on not only this community, but the players that he employed ultimately as well, including the great Peter Forsberg. He meant a lot to me. You know, he, he was there when I played my best hockey. And 
One guy that was always there was Pierre, and he was able to put an unbelievable team on, on the ice. We remember him for his hockey, but uh, we remember him almost more for what he did on the side. You know, it's always a nice guy, and he took care of all the players, all the wives, and everybody. So that's, mm-hmm. I think that's why so many people miss him right now, and, and he left us way too early. That was Peter Forsberg earlier this week on Altitude Radio. And by the way, I'm going to try to get Peter on at some point uh, down the road. Maybe my all-time favorite Denver athlete, Peter Forsberg. Charismatic, tough, talented. Injuries robbed him of having a, a super long career. But what a great, great talent. And uh fun person to be around was Peter Forsberg, number 21. Quick story uh, on Pierre Lacroix that uh, many people don't know. Do you remember when Antonio McDice was... You know, free agent and, you know, everybody was buzzing around McDice in the league, including the Dallas Mavericks. And you know how players like to recruit other great players. And McDice, who is a really gentle soul and, and, and shy, and he was having trouble trying to determine what to do next. And he was set up in a private suite at an avalanche game as he was trying to contemplate his next move. And it's before cell phones, really. And Jason Kidd and a couple of other Mavericks flew privately to Denver because they had heard he was at McNichols Arena and that he was at the avalanche game. And they wanted to, you know, kind of basically storm in and, and convince Antonio to come to Dallas. And Pierre Lacroix, who was the general manager of the Avalanche, obviously, not the Nuggets, stepped in and made sure security did not let in Jason Kidd and his entourage into McNichols that night so they could not influence Antonio McDice to potentially leave town. Uh, It's one of my favorite stories about, you know, Pierre and about that time frame and you know, the, the both franchises owned by Stan Kroenke in the same building. Uh, but uh, that also gave you a little insight into what kind of person Pierre Lacroix was. So gone way too young. I think, as I said, he'll go down as one of, uh, if not the greatest general manager in the history of Denver sports. I have some random thoughts that I wanted to share with you. Quick hitters. You know what? I, I mentioned that I was up in Boulder and doing the University of Colorado in basketball. I've had them a bunch over the last uh, several years. I've done uh, a fair number of Tad Boyle's games. He's now in his 11th year. There's no finer guy in coaching than Tad Boyle. And it is one of the great fits in Denver sports. Tad Boyle from Greeley Central, player of the year in the state, ultimately goes to the University of Kansas and comes back, coaches at UNC ultimately, has success there after turning around a program that was really down, and then goes to Boulder, and it's a perfect match. He's perfect for Boulder. Um, he does it the right way. Uh, he's clean through and through. He truly cares about his kids, and they've had a year in and year out a winning program um, and, and a program that goes fairly frequently to the NCAA tournament. They would have gone last year had it not been wiped out by the pandemic. I am a huge fan of Tad Boyle. Quick little story about Tad Boyle and the potential that he would have played collegiately 
at Colorado and not Kansas. Remember, he was a big-time recruit, player of the year at Greeley Central. They win a, a state title, and it came down to three schools, Kansas, which is a storied basketball program, as we all know, Stanford, which has always had good basketball programs and one of the great college institutions, institutions of higher learning in the world, and the University of Colorado, which is a great school, doesn't have the same basketball tradition, certainly, as Kansas. And Bill Blair was recruiting Tad Boyle then, and the signing period was in April. So the basketball season just ends, and the college basketball season ends, and Bill Blair leaves for New, for New York to, uh, to join Larry Brown. I guess they were in Jersey then as the New Jersey Nets, and, and went on his coaching staff. So all of a sudden there was a vacancy in Boulder for about six weeks, and it was right when Tad and other recruits are going to make their decision. So that's how Colorado kind of got eliminated years ago when Tad was coming out of Greeley Central, and uh, he turned down Stanford as well. I give him a hard time about that. Uh, as if, uh, you know, hey, if you're really smart, you go to Stanford, right? And he ended up as a Jayhawk. But it's a great fit with him in Boulder. Hats off to Drew Locke. Week doesn't go by that we don't talk about Drew Locke. He made a significant and prominent stride last week in uh, – Charlotte, as the Broncos had a nice victory over the Panthers, four touchdowns, no interceptions, good decisions. Hit K.J. Hamler twice on good throws. Hamler did a great job with his quickness getting wide open, and Drew Locke delivered. It was really fun to see. We go to the ski slopes because I love to ski. I covered a lot of ski racing, loved the sport, loved the sport at the World Cup level. And in town or in Vail more specifically, we have one of the great skiers of all time, Michaela Schifrin, and she went through a, a great tragedy last winter when she lost her dad suddenly, and she won her first World Cup event since her dad's passing in Courcheval in France a few days ago in winning a giant slalom there, and she had a very emotional reaction, but... Uh, it made my list of random thoughts as we do podcast number 75. So congratulations to Michaela Schifrin. And here's another note. Do you know that since Nick Saban took over in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, the rest of the SEC has seen 45 coaches hired? And Nick Saban remains, as he should and as long as he wants, in Tuscaloosa as the head coach of the number one team in the country, the Alabama Crimson Tide. Before we get to our interview of the week with Jim Gray, the longtime national talent, one of the great interviewers we've seen in sports and beyond over the last several decades, we have to get to our question of the day. Drew, if you were starting an NFL team, what player would you pick first who isn't a quarterback? All right, Frank, I like the question. So I can't take a quarterback, so there goes Mahomes, and there goes Aaron Rodgers, who I would pick one and two if I could start a team. You know where I'm going to go next? I can't have a quarterback. I am going to take not a wide receiver. I'm going to take a tight end, Travis Kelsey, who plays with Mahomes. Through 13 weeks, he has 90 catches, 1,250 yards, which computes to almost 14 yards of reception, which is really remarkable for a tight end. He's been in the end zone nine times. 
he is the biggest offensive difference maker in the sport other than a quarterback like his buddy Mahomes or an Aaron Rodgers. And for me right now, maybe Devontae Adams is a close second. But think about this. A tight end has never led the NFL in receiving yards. And Travis Kelsey right now, with those 1,250 yards, has more yards than any other receiver in the sport. So, Frank, if I could have one other player that doesn't play the position of quarterback, I'm taking Travis Kelsey of the Kansas City Chiefs. And I suspect other GMs would fall right in line with me. All right, we transition to our interview of the week brought to you by Ideal Home Loans. Jim Gray has been in the business for a long, long time. He is a Denver native. He got his start in the business at uh, Channel 9 when he was a student at the University of Colorado. And he has talked to every major star in and outside of sports, iconic figures over the last 40 years. And he's written a book, and it is a fabulous read. Talking to Goats, the moments you remember and the stories you never heard from Muhammad Ali to Michael Jordan to Tiger to Kobe to Michael Phelps, Mike Tyson, LeBron, they're all in there. And it's a a wonderful read and there's some really unbelievable stories. So without further ado, our Ideal Home Loans Interview of the Week, Jim Gray. Well, Jim, I was just saying to you, uh, you know, you and I have, have crossed paths a, a couple of times over the years, and I've always paid close attention to your career. Even though I'm a native New Yorker, I have spent my entire professional life, 35 years now, I guess, in, in Denver, and you're an old Denverite, and uh, so it's neat to see your success, and it all spawned from, from growing up here, didn't it? It sure did, yeah. Grew up in Denver, and used to go out to Bear Stadium, the precursor to Mile High Stadium, to watch the uh, Broncos play on the wooden benches of the uh, of the East Stands. And uh, that's where I grew up, watching Floyd Little and Lou Saban and going all the way back to the early days of the Denver Broncos and uh, got fortunate enough to uh, get an internship at Channel 9 when I ended up going to the University of Colorado in my freshman year. So, uh all the way back to the ABA days and being a ball boy for the Rockets and the Nuggets. And so uh, it's been a long and great, great road. But uh, uh, my roots uh, in Denver, my mom still lives there. My brothers are there. Uh, unfortunately, my dad passed away uh, be seven years ago around Christmas and uh, miss him uh, tremendously. But uh, that's where it all that's where it all started, just off of Hudson Street over there. So, Drew, yeah, still love Denver, come back all the time, see my family it's, don't follow the teams as closely uh, uh, anymore, but uh, you know, hope for their success. When when you have Denver in your blood, it never leaves. No, absolutely. You've seen the city from afar now uh, really emerge from as it used to be described as a, you know dusty old cow town to you know to a vibrant uh, city. You have written a book, and I have um, I, I've been reading it, and and I tell you what, for me, it is absolutely riveting. Uh, you know, we're in the same industry, but whether you do what you and I do for a living or you're just a, a even a casual sports fan, your interactions with some of the most iconic figures over the last really 50 years, not just in sports, but, uh, you know, Nelson Mandela, Richard Nixon, um, 
it, to me, it, it, it's fascinating, and, and, the, and the stories read so well. Uh, the name of the book, again, is, is Talking to Goats, The Moments You Remember and Stories You Never Heard. Uh, Jim, before we go all the way back again to your Channel 9 days, I want to ask you, is this something in the works over a period of time where you said, man, I've, I've had a lot of pretty cool interactions. I'm going to put it on paper. About three years ago, I started with Greg Bishop, who wrote the book with me. He's a with Sports Illustrated. He's a great writer. And uh, it was just uh, phenomenal what he was able to do, putting together, you know, these tens of thousands of interviews and events. And, you know, it's 43 years uh, broadcasting now, Drew going back to Channel 9 all the way back in 1977 and 78 when I started. So uh, it's it's been a long time, and I turned 60 years old uh, uh, a year ago, and we started on it when I was 58. And writing a book is, you know, you and I talk for a living. So, you know, Stedman Graham is a dear friend of mine. Uh, he's written 12 books, his last one, Identity Leadership. Uh, and he's been telling me for years two things. Jim Gray, they're paying you to talk. Just keep talking. And uh, the other one was you need to get these stories down on paper. So whenever I would see Stedman, he said, have you started on this? Are you doing anything about this? Well, he's written 12 books. He obviously lives with Oprah. They know a lot about books. And I kept hearing in his voice, you know, that there is a book here. And so I finally decided to do it with Greg. And uh, it, the process is is really hard, though, um, particularly if you haven't written anything, and I haven't written anything since I left college at the University of Colorado. Now, thankfully, Greg did all of the writing, but just the process of doing it and going back and all of the things that have to be done to put it into that form, what stories are important to me, what stories would be important for, you know, the readers to have, uh, you know, and sometimes you just have to figure uh, figure this stuff out as you go. So what's important to me might have zero interest to anybody else. Um and so when you do all of it and checking the facts and talking to people who you haven't spoken to in 20, 30, 40 years to make sure that my memory serves the same as it happened and with other people's memories, and, and then you get it all down. And uh, um, if you, if you're, you know, I wanted to do it right, too. You know, I didn't want to do it. And that's the one thing my dad taught me all those years ago, Drew. If you're going to do something, commit to it and do it well. He didn't want me to play basketball half-assed. He wanted me to make every basket. He didn't want me to read a book and not comprehend it. He wanted me to put my full energy and attention into it. So in doing that, you know, it's it's a, it's a consuming process, and I'm proud of what we produced and and happy with it, uh, but it's it's a lot, lot different. You know, I had tremendous respect for the writers who do so much of our work, Drew. You know, we come into these cities and we read the newspapers, the blogs, now on social media to find the stories. And these writers are doing all of this work every day that we're able to do our research from to get ready for our broadcast. And so I've always had tremendous respect, but then you go and do something like this and it just takes it to a whole new level. Yeah, absolutely. I had the good fortune of doing a book with... Uh... Uh, primarily on the Rockies that, that came out about a year or so ago with, with Ben Hockman, who's a columnist with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch now, he used to be in Denver. And um, absolutely, I've always had great respect for, for writers, but um, uh, how they organize things and, and the volumes of things that you had to go through with Greg Bishop, uh, you know, it's, it's an enormous process. Um, I, I want to go back 
to your days as an intern at Channel 9. wasn't even known as KUSA in those days. And it's before cell phones. And you're in, and somebody comes in. I'll, I'll let you tell the story because it's a magnificent story that really got you going as an interviewer, if you will. And, and why don't you pick it up from there? Well, it was KBTV back then, and it was the ABC affiliate. And I had had a sports internship uh, through the University of Colorado School of Journalism. Uh, so KBTV doesn't exist anymore. It's KUSA, and the School of Journalism doesn't exist anymore. It's mass communications. So things changed quite a bit. Anyway, I was in the uh, edit booth because they were converting from film to videotape. So a lot of the guys who were, you know, the, the film editors didn't want to learn a new craft. So they took the union buyouts and they, you know, just moved on. So a lot of young people got an opportunity to be involved in television. So I took my internship and got hired as a videotape editor in my second semester as a freshman. And I was in there editing the Broncos with Red Miller show. And they were preparing for the draft or something. It was, you know, it was a, it was an off-season show. And I was in there early in the morning. It was like 7 or 7.15 in the morning. And Sue Tews, the assignment editor, came running in. And uh, she said, you're the sports intern, and you know something about sports, correct? I said, sure. What do you got? And she said, well, Muhammad Ali's two and a half hours early at the airport. And uh, go interview him. Well, I'd never done an interview before, Drew. <laughs> sitting in this edit booth i was in my jeans you know i looked representable but i wasn't you know dressed to be on television and so i ran into stormy rotman's office he was the weatherman that tried on his clothes and of course he was the little guy so nothing fit so anyway i just ran out to the airport uh no preparation no idea uh that i was going to be doing this because like you said you know if you couldn't no cell phone no beeper no way to get somebody if they didn't answer their home phone. If Ed Sardella at the time didn't answer his phone at home at that hour in the morning, you couldn't find him. So Mike Nolan wasn't available. Nobody was around. So I went out there and asked Ali the first question, met him, went up the escalator, uh, met him, and we sat down in this room. And I asked the first question, and he responded by saying, you're the one that's doing this interview? And everybody laughed, the whole entourage. Well, that was the best thing that happened, Drew, because when he laughed that relaxed me because he wasn't laughing at me. He was laughing at the circumstance. And it was funny. Right. So right. I laughed. So when I laughed and everybody else was laughing, that took all the edge off of me, all the nerves and anxiety. He was the most famous man in the world. And he was getting ready to fight Spinks. And then after that, he was going to fight Lyle Alzado, who played for the Broncos in an exhibition. And so uh, anyway, by the third or fourth question, he said to me, you sound like the local Howard's Cosell. <laughs> and that was the greatest compliment I ever had, Drew. Sure. You know, I loved Howard Cosell and used to watch Ali and Cosell with my dad and all their fights. And we'd go to the closed circuits down at the Paramount Theater uh, with my brothers or with my dad. Or, you know, we'd watch the replays on Wide World of Sports. So that was a great compliment. Anyway, I took the tape back to the uh, station and Roger Ogden, who was the news director uh, back then, walked in and watched the tape with me for an hour and a half. Ali gave me 45 minutes, so Roger watched it twice. And at the end of it, he looked at me, and he looked at, and he pulled out the tape, and he said, because I was editing myself out, they weren't going to put me on television. He said, you and this videotape are going on the air. It's barely adequate. So I tell everybody I've been barely adequate ever since. <laughs> it's such a marvelous story. Now, we all ha are uh, that get into the business are enamored with it at, at some level initially, 
and imagine ourselves doing X, Y, or Z in the business. When you were a student up in Boulder, and, and obviously you were fixated on the business, but did you have, I mean, did I know this much, I've become a more of a play-by-play guy than anything, but when I first got in way back, I wanted to be a sports anchor. I want to be, you know, ultimately Marv Albert in New York or Warner Wolf in New York on the desk. Is that what you aspired to be, or was it to be what you ultimately became? You know, I really didn't know. I didn't. I didn't have that kind of goal or that kind of uh, dream, Drew. You know, I just kind of liked what I was exposed to and wanted to do more of it. So, you know, when I was sitting in the edit booth after the news, you know, after my internship and being given the opportunity, and Mike Nolan was so wonderful to me. I mean, he was a great mentor, as was Roger Ogden, a man named Cecil Walker who gave me the opportunity, and Corey McFerrin. So those four guys just really kind of took me under their wing, and, and I don't know what it is they saw, but for whatever the reason was, you know, they decided that they were going to put some effort into me, which was, you know, just so 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 marvelous and so, you know, wonderful of them because they didn't have to, but they did. And so I didn't have this great grand goal. I just wanted to continue doing what I was doing, and, you know, they would give me their scripts, and I would go up on the set, and I would try and read them. And, you know, it was hard to do. I wasn't any good at it, okay? Mm-hmm. By the way, I was still 18 and 19 years old, so there was a reason I wasn't any good at it because, you know, who would be? But right. I just wanted to keep doing the interviews and, and and be allowed to be around. But when I was editing all the videotape for the sports department, after the news would finish at 1030 at night, on would come, on one channel, would come Johnny Carson in The Tonight Show, and I had three monitors in that booth. The other would be Channel 9, which would be the beginning of the America Held Hostage uh, with Ted Koppel. It became the precursor to Nightline. So I would see on one channel Johnny Carson, and on the other channel Ted Koppel, and I would stare at them and watch them both simultaneously with the volume on on both of them. Um something that would drive my mom crazy when I used to listen to the radio and watch TV at home at the same time. And I would listen to them both. And what I found out is that they were both unbelievably great because they could listen, think, and react all at the same blink of an eye. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't it crazy how good these guys are and how well they listen and how they can just take the information and immediately respond? And so I would start studying them and looking at them, and I started to think, you know, if you could do an interview, and then I'd done the Ali interview, if you can do an interview and you can listen to what they have to say and then you can think immediately and react to that, you know, there's something to it. Well, it's very hard. It's easy to watch it. It's very hard to do. But I just started looking at them and I watched them for a couple of years as much as I could. And I really think that helps. So I started to think, you know, maybe I should just do interviews. And then when you're editing interviews, you see what the local reporters were doing, which was good or bad or how they, you know, perfected their craft. Um, and you could see all of the people who, who you were editing, whether it was, you know, Ward Lucas or John Nickel or, you know, just whoever it was uh, uh, who was working at Channel 9. And you could just see how you could come become better. So that's what I started to look at. So I kind of just fell into the interviews because I was able to do them. And then after the Ali interview, they had a... a at ABC stations had something called DEF. So um, it was ABC station, and DEF stood for Daily Electronic Feed. So they would send out everything that every station did 
for the rest of the stations across the country on the satellite could take down. So my Ali interview went on DEF, and all the stations took it down. Well, Ali saw that it had a good reaction. It got back to him, or he saw it in the next city where he was. So he started inviting me and allowing me to interview him before and after his fight. Okay, because there was a young kid who he was very patient with, and, you know, he got a kick out of, and he helped me tremendously, opened all the doors. And so I would go to his fights and do these interviews. Well, Bob Arum saw that. And so he would hire me then to come to all of his fights to do the interviews with Hagler and Hearns and Leonard and Durand and everybody. And then Don King saw it, and he would hire me for his fight. So that Ali interview opened all the doors, but sitting in that edit booth, really helped me because I could see how just how great Johnny Carson and Ted Koppel were. And so I started to study them. Yeah, the art the art of interviewing, the most important aspect of that, and, and you just uh, alluded to it, is to have the ability to listen to the response. And I think so many young people sometimes... They, they get fixated on their list of questions that they have and they and, and somebody may have opened up a you know a something we you know a, a whole different other avenue that could be a you know a, a fascinating place to go but you miss it because you're fixated on the next question and and obviously you never were you've always listened carefully well you try to I mean you have to have an idea of where you're going with some of these things but you have to be flexible enough to be immediately able to, you know, veer off and, and just follow up to whatever it is that's being said. I mean, most questions and responses require follow-ups, but if they don't, then you can, you know, have in your head what it is that, you know, you want to talk about. Yeah. But if not, you really got to listen. It's hard, though. You know, there's somebody in your ear, you know, sometimes, you know, there's, there's no place to go with the follow-ups, or sometimes all the follow-ups lead to more follow-ups. So you don't even get to some of the important points because, you know, time is finite, particularly on television or at the end of a game. Yeah, you know, not, not like not, you have eight minutes to get to all of this. And not to mention, you know, you're generally amidst, you know, a crowd of if it's an arena, 20,000, if it's a stadium, 70,000, 80,000, and it's absolutely loud. More with Jim Gray in a moment. But first this from one of our great sponsors, Ideal Home Loans. If you like to save money, I think you're like everybody else, including myself. And the way to do it is to lower your mortgage payments. You can refinance right now at Ideal Home Loans. Historically low rates. Give them a call at 303-867-7000. 303-867-7000. The real estate market is hot as it's been in a long, long time. So if you're purchasing a new home or a second home, Call Ideal Home Loans. Brent Ivinson's team is going to take wonderful care of you. 303-867-7000. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Now more of my conversation with Jim Gray. You know, in talking to goats, I mean, so many really marvelous stories. And I want to take you to a few. As moving a period of time and the world was turned upside down, and certainly our country was turned upside down after 9-11. And Yankee Stadium and President Bush throwing out that first pitch at Yankee Stadium. And forget political affiliation. I think everybody w was so fixated on sports returning and, and, and the symbolism 
of President Bush going to the mound in the Bronx. Take us through that story and what you learned. Well, being at that event and and just going into the stadium, that was the first time I can ever remember, you know, actually going through a metal detector in America for um, an event. I might have done it at the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. Um, could have been, I, I don't recall, but I know for a regular scheduled game, even though it was a World Series, that was the first time I remember, and the lines were long, and everybody was very worried about another terrorist attack being imminent. This was just a few short weeks after 9-11, and they had decided to play the games um, in New York, and uh, the uh, World Series uh, taking place there, it wasn't really like a celebration. It was, you know, very quiet. Um, and I had been to a Notre Dame game, uh, the week before and, you know, people were just kind of numb still. So, you know, there wasn't the normal reactions to great plays being made on the field by, by the Irish or whatever. And so in Yankee stadium, you go through these metal detectors and then, uh, you're waiting for the lineups to be announced and lo and behold, unbeknownst to the crowd, here comes president Bush and he comes out to the mound to the chance of USA and, you know, it was just, it was just stirring and, and emotional to see this young president of the United States. And like you say, all the politics go out the window. Here's, here's a young man who's been dealt an awful hand, uh, with this terrorism that had gone on and the destruction and, and the grieving and the mourning of, uh, of 9-11. And here he was, uh, standing out there by himself, uh, on a pitcher's mound. You know, when there's anthrax being sent around the country, when there could be a sniper in the stands, when you you just don't know where or what is going to hit next. And he stands out there and raises his hand and puts his thumb up in the air, thumbs up, and throws that strike. It was just tremendous. I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking about it and... You know, just to have been there and to see him walk off and wave. And, you know, you were just proud. You were just proud to be an American, proud of baseball, proud of the Yankees. You know, and, and, and what he was saying was we're, we're never going to forget what happened just down the street here uh, at the Twin Towers and in Pennsylvania and at the Pentagon. But just like FDR, we're going to try and have some sense of mourning for these folks properly but let's play baseball. Let's have a little respite and let's try and see if we can for at least a couple of hours do something that might make us feel a little better and have something that's just a little bit normal. And with tremendous pride and courage and dignity, he went out there and did that. And it had nothing to do at all with being a Republican, a Democrat, um, anything other than, you know, throwing that pitch and, and, and trying to, to lead uh, uh, the country into a place and lead us out of that wilderness. And Jimmy got a little advice from uh, the the best shortstop in baseball at the time, didn't he? Don't bounce the ball. Don't bounce the ball, Mr. President. You're in New York at Yankee Stadium, said Derek Jeter. They'll boo you. <laughs> <laughs> you. You did, and you wrote about uh, and this individual who's one of the all-time greats. That's why the name of the book is Talking to Goats. Um, you did an interview uh, of many you did with Henry Aaron that never ran. And no, it did run. It, it did. It did. It did ultimately run. It did run. Yes. It did ultimately run. 
It ran, and the questions became after it ran. The interview ran in which uh, Hank Aaron on CBS, uh, you know, talked about what had happened to him and uh, the path that he he had after breaking Babe Ruth's home run record, and that how he had basically been forgotten, and that the record just happened, and how had it happened to somebody like uh, uh, Mickey Mantle uh, or. Ted Williams or somebody else, it would have been a financial bonanza, but because it happened to him and he was uh, an African-American, you know, it was just kind of pushed back and he had broken the record of a legend in Babe Ruth. And so, you know, it was, uh, and, and he said this is quite frequently happens to uh, uh, African-Americans that, it, you know, it wasn't unique to him. It also happened to uh, Ernie Banks and, and he said even Willie Mays, he said in the interview. Um, so he, and he said that there was a concerted effort by Major League Baseball to not bring the game to blacks and to not include blacks in, in upper management and, you know, managerial and uh, authoritative positions. So the interview ran and Major League Baseball got very unhappy with that interview, uh, Drew, uh, that uh, somebody like Hank Aaron was on there criticizing the commissioner's office and the institution, the ownerships of, of, of baseball uh, for what had happened to him. And uh, so, um, and, and he, he specifically stated in the interview on CBS that he wasn't going to keep his mouth shut, that he was going to uh, say what was on his mind and tell the truth. And for telling the truth, nobody should be upset. Interesting. And uh, it, that began a, you know, a lifelong relationship with the great Henry Aaron. Uh, I'd be remiss, and I know you're often asked about this as you're doing the book tour, uh, about Pete Rose and that very famous interview you did with him during the World Series uh, in Atlanta. I re Jim, I, I've seen you interview countless people, and, and you know, I, I remember that time well, and I tried to put myself in your shoes because there are important questions that need to be asked, and I was thinking through the same thing that I'm sure you were in, in the lead-up. You know, it, it, is it appropriate to ask on this stage and that sort of thing? Now that you've had many years to reflect and you wrote about it, take us through uh, if you would, you know, the lead up, the interview with him and, and obviously the fallout. Well, there's a whole chapter on this. Uh, yep. And talking to ghosts, it's, uh, I titled it, uh, your rose, my thorn. You know, nobody does anything in television by themselves, Drew. You've been in this a long time. So it's a concerted effort and it takes everybody, you know, contributing and, and it's an ensemble. So everybody from the president of the of, of the network and the sports division, Dick Ebersol, uh, to Bob Costas and Joe Morgan, who was a former teammate of Pete Rose, obviously with the Big Red Machine, and Bob Euchre and myself, and the uh, producers, uh, Sam Flood, and so forth. We all decided that you know Pete Rose was the guy to interview. He hadn't been on the field for ten years. He had signed his own banishment in 1989, and this is now 1999 for the All Century team. So it was obvious that he had to be spoken to and. Since he was, you know, elected by the fans, uh, baseball had lost control of the ceremony. They couldn't say, well, we sold this to a credit card company, and now the credit card company uh, can't put his name on the ballot. So they, they had already, you know, they had already fumbled all of that, uh, switching metaphors from sports. But uh, 
<laughs> they had already struck out on that end, so they had to let Pete participate. And so the fans were giving, in essence, Pete his Hall of Fame induction that night. And so we had to talk to Pete about, you know, him being allowed back on the field and his participation. So we all decided that these gambling questions were, were you know, paramount and had to be uh, had to be asked. Now, the feeling that went over television that night, Drew, was this tremendous feeling of melancholy, uh, wonderful warmth of a, taking you back to a place uh, where you felt great about seeing all of your baseball heroes. Here was Ted Williams being helped on the stage by Willie Mays, who was shaking hands with Sandy Colfax, who was being hugged by Frank Robinson, who was being saluted by um, Stan Musial, and, and then the ovations were just astounding for, for Hank Aaron uh, being the hometown hero and the home run king in Atlanta. And, and then the biggest ovation was for Pete Rose. So there was this warm feeling of symbols and trombones that the television audience was seeing that takes you to a place that, that just makes you feel great. And uh, there's Vince Foley, you know, with his beautiful, you know, poetic introduction of all these guys. And he said something that night. He said, we will see here this evening a collection of folks, the likes of which will never be duplicated or replicated uh, in our lifetimes. And he was right. So here's this warm feeling. Everybody's feeling terrific. I'm sitting in the dugout at the Yankees dugout, and it didn't come across the same way in the stadium as it did at home. So I made a mistake by not watching television because we're on television. I wasn't watching the monitor. I was watching something that was, you know, in shallow center field just past second base uh, from a dugout. So it was a different feeling for me than the people at home were receiving. And so then Pete comes over, and then the whole tone changed, you know, by me asking him about uh, all of this gambling and by him continuing to lie and, you know, try and not uh, come, obviously not come clean uh, for many years uh, after. Uh, and so it just kind of snowballed and careened uh, from there. Yeah. And there were, listen, you dealt with, uh, I know your phone blew up during the game, some people who were very close to you, including, uh, you know, the actor Jack Nicholson, uh, Don King, who you had mentioned uh, earlier, calling you during the game on your cell phone. And I don't think the magnitude of uh, the uproar um, for that interview, it, it, it didn't become to you the realization of it probably until the next morning as, as you wrote. Um the aftermath and the death threats and that sort of thing. Would you have done anything differently now as you reflect back um, on your on that night and, and the ensuing days? Well, the questions and the content, I think, were 100% accurate and, and needed to be asked. The timing and the tone of it, uh, I should have been watching television, as Dick Ebersol pointed out, and which we did a day or two later, you know, uh, when we when we reviewed the tape because of the feeling of warmth that people were having. So the timing and the tone, uh, and perhaps the questions went on too long uh, about what had gone on with his gambling. So, you know, when you talk about in hindsight, um, so yes, that, that obviously I should have been watching television, and that was a great lesson. And when you're on television... You better be watching television so you're having the experience that the people at home are having. It's great as a reporter because 
my job usually is to be able to tell people what the camera didn't see or what they didn't hear from the audio. And that's why there are reporters uh, on site uh, and sideline reporters, so they can give you something that you can't necessarily see. Uh, in this instance, though, uh, that was something that obviously I should have been doing, but I didn't. So, yeah, I could understand, having watched it on tape later, uh, how that came across as abrupt and how that came across as changing the whole feeling uh, of it. But in terms of the of the questions themselves, those questions were, were the right questions. Was the timing exactly right? No. But the questions were, and by the way, uh, about a year and a half ago, Drew, uh, I was asked to introduce Mike Tyson for uh, an award that was presented to him by the Cancer Society. And so I, I was at the table with Mike and his wife, Kiki, and my wife, Fran. And unbeknownst to me, they were giving Pete Rose an award that evening as well. So before the awards went on, Pete got up and walked over the table, and I said to my wife, Fran, oh, boy, here comes Pete. Had you had you seen him since then, Jim? I'd seen him three or four times, uh, always in Las Vegas, always at fights. And okay. it had always been cordial, but uncomfortable. Sure. But cordial. No problem. Yeah. I'd seen him in the Caesars Mall where he signed the the forum shops where he signs autographs, and we had spoken. And I'd seen him with Mike Tyson before and Al Bernstein, who I broadcast fights with. It's funny because Al Bernstein and Mike have a bad history, and me and Pete had a bad history. Right. So you talk about a foursome that was uncomfortable. Uh, I love Tyson, and Bernstein loves Pete. So <laughs> we all four ran into each other at <laughs> <in> a fight. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I'd seen him. I'd seen him three or four times uh, before, and I used to do the Phillies pregame show when I worked for Prism. So I had interviewed Pete between fifty and a hundred times, and then I'd go on his radio show uh, from when he got out of baseball. He had a, a radio talk show, and I'd go on his show from the Masters or the Final Four, or whatever. He'd have me call in, so I was well acquainted with Pete. We were friendly. We weren't friends, but we were very friendly. And I'd interviewed him probably a hundred times. So anyway. He gets up, and he's walking over the table. I say to my wife, Fran, uh-oh, I wonder how this is going to go. So I get up, and he extends his hand, and he says, Jim, you do a great job. You're terrific at what you do. And I kind of looked at him. And he was sincere in what he was saying, and he repeated it. And so we shook hands, and I said, Pete, you really don't mean that. You really don't mean that, and I know you don't. And he said, <laughs> oh. He said, no, I do. And he said, what happened between us was a long time ago. You were just doing your job. And... Those were the questions that had to be asked. And so I said, oh, wow, okay. And then Mike jumped up, and then he said to Mike, he said, Mike, let me ask you a question. Who do you think would have won that fight between Jim and I? And Tyson said immediately, Jim, Jim would have killed you. <laughs> so everybody laughed, and so that that really broke the ice. And then about, uh, so that was a year and a half ago, and then about two months ago this year, Drew, uh, uh, Fox, uh gave me a special, which was very nice of the people at Fox, uh, a Talking to Goats special on the book. And so I decided I'm going to call Pete and see if he wanted to participate in it. Uh, uh, we had a lot of guys do the special. Tom Brady, who wrote the foreword, was on. Uh, Mike Tyson. A lot of the people who I've interviewed, Lonnie Ali, representing Muhammad. Anyway, so I called up Pete and I said, do you want to do an interview? It's been 21 years. And he said, sure. So I drove over, believe it or not, to the Bellagio Hotel from Los Angeles. I got in my car, I drove for several hours, we did the interview, talked for an hour, very cordial, very good. The last question that I asked him was, 
uh, Pete, do you still bet on baseball? And uh, he thought about it, and he said, yeah, I do. Uh, I, I haven't this year, but I still bet on baseball. And then he threw in the caveat. He said, but I bet on it legally now, not illegally. Everything that I bet is through the casino. Yeah, that that is wild. I, I didn't know the follow-up, and... Um... That that whole that whole thing as it unfolded um, was wild, and 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 now the epilogue that you shared, um, fascinating. We're gonna have part two of our interview with Jim Gray next week, and talk a little bit about the late Nelson Mandela and some stories that that are really truly remarkable. And I know sometimes we throw words around and and they become hyperbolic, and but. There are some just marvelous stories within this book, and, and he's going to retell some more next week uh, in part two of our interview with Jim Gray. And, uh, you know, you, you always like to see a, a local guy do well, and Jim Gray has certainly done that. And we also talk about how he's been able to establish himself uh, in, in long-term relationships with so many guys. There's something about him that is, I guess, you know, caring and uh, and professional, yet unassuming and, and not uh, offensive that so many of these folks like a Mike Tyson, like a Tom Brady have welcomed him in, have embraced him. And we'll talk more about that next week. That'll do it for our show this week. We thank you so much for joining us each and every week on the podcast. Stay safe. Enjoy the holidays. Enjoy your family. And we'll talk to you again next week on the Drew Goodman Podcast. You've been listening to the Drew Goodman Podcast. Subscribe at iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. And leave a comment that helps other people find the show.